Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. While the shift to at-home learning has underscored the ubiquity of learning, especially since March 2020, it has also cast into sharp relief a crucial but suddenly imperiled dimension of education, which is the distinct gift of teachers and artful teaching. Those words appeared in the Church Life Journal as part of an essay titled, New Pathways for Catholic Education After the Pandemic. The author of that essay is Dr. Katie Macaluso. Katie works and teaches at the University of Notre Dame within the Institute for Educational Initiatives, where she forms new teachers and helps to strengthen Catholic schools all across the country. She enables us to see that the experiences of education over the past year now force upon us urgent questions about the meaning and the end of education, about the special mission of Catholic education, and about what exactly we hope that our children receive through their education. What Katie has to share would always be relevant, but in our day and age, it is not only relevant, but timely and even prophetic. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Katie Macaluso, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lenny. It's great to be here. So way back in, say, I don't know, January 2020, the term in-person instruction was not really part of most people's working vocabulary. We didn't really use that term. In fact, before we get into the in-person part, which I do want to talk about, I want to ask you to comment on the term instruction. We seem to use that colloquially as a direct synonym for education or for teaching, but I take it that that's not really your understanding of it. So I was wondering if you could help to maybe reset these terms or draw some distinctions for us between learning and education or teaching, on the other hand. Great. Thanks, yeah. Lenny. Yes, sure. I think I think I I struggled a lot with really the confluence of those terms mm-hmm. in the last year and some change. And I don't think I ever thought about them quite as deeply as I did throughout the pandemic months. But to your point, I think that there is this conflation of education with instruction. And I think a lot of what I'm arguing about in the essay that the Church Life Journal was kind enough to publish is that education in many ways is the whole. It's a whole experience that exceeds the sum of the multiple parts. Mm. And I think instruction is certainly one part of the educational experience. And I think it also points to what I get at in the essay, which is this really important relational dimension to education. And I think throughout the essay, what I'm trying to do is tease out this idea that instruction or teaching is more than the facilitation of learning. And education, as a result, is also more than simply the facilitation of learning. It would seem to me that most of us would actually accept that as a definition of education, the facilitation of learning. Isn't that what it is? So what is the the more on the holistic horizon, you could say, that we want to reclaim or emphasize, especially when we come to Catholic education? Yeah, great question. So I think 
in some ways, your question is getting at what is the purpose of education. And, How about that? <laughs> We're only a couple minutes in and we've gotten to the big, big question. All right. No big deal. Uh, yeah. no, that's not a hard question to answer at all. <laughs> uh, but the purpose of education. So I think that Catholic education actually takes that purpose question quite seriously, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, from a textbook standpoint, if we talk about what the purpose of Catholic education is, at the end of the day, it's evangelization, mm-hmm. right? It's bringing Jesus Christ into the lives of human beings in order to make them most fully alive. And so to that end, I guess if we start from that assumption, which is obviously something that I believe as a Catholic educator, then education can never be purely or simply the facilitation of learning because we are always learning with some larger end in mind, Mm -hmm. right, which is to become more and most fully alive And I would add to that most fully alive so that we can be in greatest service to God and to others. And so to that end, education is never simply just really imbibing information, if that makes sense. Yeah. So in response to that question of what is the purpose of education, is it the fact that we're actually dealing without recognizing it with competing ends of what we're learning for? So as you're saying, with Catholic education, in the end, there's a clear and robust understanding of the purpose of the education is towards evangelization to introduce and to bring into the lives of people the life of Jesus, right? So they can live his life. When we think about education in other terms, when there's other ends in play that might be contributing to this overemphasis, say, on learning outcomes or things like that, what are some of the other ends that you think are there? that are sort of competing with this end that Catholic education claims? Sure. That's a great question. So I actually I have the great privilege of teaching in the education, schooling, and society minor here uh-huh. at Notre Dame. And one year I had the opportunity to teach the introductory course to that minor, which I think now has become a supplementary major here. Moving but, up the ladder. Yeah, right? moving yeah. up the ladder. But one of the, the readings that I introduced to my students in that course is by David Labrie. And mm. he's a he deals in the sociology of education and even the history of education. And and he talks about these three competing purposes of education. And those three purposes are social mobility, so climbing up the social ladder, right, and gaining more capital. Mm-hmm. Social efficiency, which means that we are preparing individuals to contribute to the economy. And then the third purpose is democratic citizenship. So preparing students to be active and meaningful contributors to the civic sphere of society. And of course, it's always interesting teaching that reading because as a Catholic educator, I always want (laughs) a little bit more than that, right? Actually, a lot more than that to a certain (laughs) extent. But I think that there is this tendency even now, and and you actually see it even in the Catholic sector Mm -hmm. as you're trying to, you know, if you're in a leadership role, or you're sitting on the school board listening to conversations, you hear these sort of different values that families and parents as consumers of education are bringing to the table. And a lot of times what happens is there's this almost dichotomy that's existing between those who want an education that's going to get their child into Harvard, right, and be prepared for a high-paying career, and then those who you know, are interested in creating saints and, Mm -hmm. you know, citizenship in heaven, not Mm -hmm. just the the earthly world. And I say it's this dichotomy. And I 
I don't mean to suggest that that is a dichotomy. In many ways, like what we want to be doing is bringing both the academic end of of education and Mm -hmm. what it means to create academic rigor for our students together with this idea of evangelization and citizenship in heaven. Those two things don't have to work in competition with one another. But I think with our current obsession with sort of pragmatism and anything economic in terms that that in in many ways rules the discourse of education. Yeah. Well, and I think that maybe brings us to the in-person part of all of this that has really come to the fore, the question of the Mm in-person part, which has come to the fore over the the last year or so, maybe a little bit more. When the in-person part of education, of schooling, was no longer taken for granted, we didn't really consider the possibility that it wouldn't be in-person, at least in the elementary level, maybe up through high school. But certainly with the pandemic and many schools that were closed and forced to go online or to a hybrid model, it introduced perhaps some questions about, well, what's really the value of being there in person? There have been risks with it. Do we need to accept the risks? When it returns to the point where, as it seems like it is, where it returns to the point where the risks, at least to health, aren't the same that they were, why the push to be in person? Can't we do this in a cheaper and a more efficient way? deliver more instruction online or through alternative means. So why don't we talk then a little bit about this in-person part? What have you recognized in terms of maybe the urgency that has come towards needing to be in person that maybe wasn't there before? What, What does that say to you? And I suppose on the other side, what do you see as the dangers of getting away from the importance of being in person? So. Oh, I almost kind of I almost want to do this in reverse order because you, you brought up that term efficiency. Yeah. And to me, I guess I hadn't really even thought about it in this light until you raised this question and brought up that term. But I think that might actually be one of the greatest risks of the past year and a half. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned before, there's already this obsession, if you look back at the history of education, with efficiency and creating an efficient economy and a civic sphere in which people are like-minded and therefore, you know, different social measures pass more efficiently. And in some ways, when you think about sort of the economy of schooling in the last Mm -hmm. year and some change, it has been an economy of efficiency, right? Mm -hmm. How can we educate more people quickly and at a less lesser overhead cost? And so, so that does beg the question, why bother with in-person instruction? Mm-hmm. And and that really was the thought exercise of that essay that I just really felt in my heart that I was, you know, being called to write. Mm-hmm. Because I think in thinking so deeply about the value of in-person instruction, and why is it that, you know, 92% of Catholic schools in the fall compared to 43% of their public school counterparts were jumping over hurdles to open doors and keep in-person instruction as an option on the table. Why Why was that the case? And I really do think in many ways it came down, at least what I write about in the essay, and I can unpack this a little bit more, but I think in many ways we have a tremendous exemplar, right, at the helm of what we do in Catholic education, and that is Jesus Christ himself. And it's not insignificant that he came to us, right, on Christmas in the form of a human being, Mm -hmm. right, in the flesh. Mm -hmm. Emmanuel, God is with us. And there is something about being with one another 
that is just essential to the human experience. So that that is one, you know, piece of the in-person like I think why and how Catholic schools really jumped over these hurdles. We have this exemplar. Another thing is that in the Catholic tradition, right, we know that we were never promised that the conditions are going to be perfect. Right. Like the only thing that we're guaranteed in life is that there will be crosses <laughs> and that a life in union with Christ and with God is going to result in, you know, a life beyond this one. So so I think that that's, that's another calling that we had before us as Catholic educators. We we were dealt a string of crosses, and we knew that we had to work through that, and we needed to work through that with one another. Mm-hmm. And so thinking through all of that in the background and sort of the theology of why in-person matters, I then started to think about, okay, why and how does this matter as an educator? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is something I do for a living. I form teachers. Right. Um, that's part of my job here at Notre Dame. And so I obviously think deeply about what teaching and the art of teaching really means. And to harken back to what we were talking about earlier, there is this temptation to equate teaching with the facilitation of learning, which seems very scientific and almost robotic to a certain extent. And nothing against science by any means. But I think there is an artistry to teaching, and that artistry happens at this intersection of these always shifting relationships between and among purpose, like why are we here? Why are we teaching what we're teaching? Content, and then the people with whom and for whom we are teaching, right? right. We always talk about in, in my English methods class, yes, you're teaching English language arts, but you are teaching students English language arts. Yes. And who those students are is going to differ from second period to sixth period. <laughs> it's going to differ from, you know, Monday to Tuesday, right? right? right so right. Um, so the, the deaf teacher is the one who is artfully, like, responding to those ever-shifting relationships in service to the people that have put in their charge who they are called, right, to bring to mm. the fullest state possible in service to others. <sighs> I could say much more about learning, too, in person, but uh, I won't go there yet unless you want me to. <laughs> well, of course I'm going to ask you to, but first let me remind people this is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. I'm talking with Dr. Katie Macaluso, assistant teaching professor in the Institute for Educational Initiatives at Notre Dame, where she also serves as director of ACE Advocates, which brings her into contact with Catholic schools throughout the nation. So, well, you asked your own question. You, you, had, you said you had some more to say about in-person instruction there. So tell us a little bit more about exactly. that. Exactly. Well, so so I was talking about how the past year and some change mm-hmm. has, has put um, – has really cast teaching in – not necessarily necessarily a new light for me, but a newly illuminated. Um, I, I just I've I've thought about what teaching means a lot right. more deeply. Right. And I mentioned earlier that teaching is more than the facilitation of learning. And so then I've also just been thinking very deeply about well, you know, what constitutes learning, and and how do we know that students have learned? And just having myself had to teach in a virtual context last summer when the whole world was shut down. I will say it's very difficult to get an in-depth read of your students on a screen oh, and yeah. to really grasp the degree to which they are grappling with and comprehending, you know, what it is that you are really working towards as a community of learners. Mm-hmm. And it's even it's amazing to me even just having some of the same students this summer in person as I had last summer on the screen 
how much more has been revealed to me just about my students, not only curricular struggles, but everyday life struggles. And, and, and certainly that factors into their learning. Yeah. Um, so, so I think learning we have to remember is it's an embodied experience. It's mm-hmm. not just cerebral. It's not just rational. It is, it's a fully embodied experience. And as teachers, we're constantly reading those fully embodied signs, right? Which, yeah. which goes back to who we are as incarnational beings. And I also think that, you know, you and I were talking before this this podcast this morning a little bit about the power of stories. And our, our students bring they, – they have storied lives. That's how I like to describe that. And they're bringing stories into the classroom and into our school buildings with them. And I think so much of teaching is about tapping into those stories, about drawing parallels and analogies and really kind of hanging the content on the hooks of these students' lives to help them make sense of it. And again, that goes back to this idea of right teaching as existing at this really complex intersection of relationships between and among people's content and purpose. But that has implications is what I'm trying to say for learning. And the last thing I'll say about learning that I get into in this essay, you know, it's embodied, it's it's connected to the stories that students bring into the classroom, and it transcends the scripted curriculum mm. that we say we abide by in schools. And I think that, you know, if anyone needs to be transcending the scripted curriculum, it's Catholic schools, mm. because we are about encounter right? And we're about helping human beings become, as I keep saying, most fully alive. And I think in the context of a community of learners, our job to a certain extent, not only teacher to student, but I think student to student as well and staff to student, is to, I I use this analogy or metaphor in the essay of just kind of holding up lights to one another and fully illuminating who we are and who we can most fully become. Yeah, And I think that happens best in relationship, because mm. I think as an isolated individual, it's virtually impossible to see who we can most fully become. But when we're in relationship with others, it's those others that help us to see what's possible in ourselves. And, and I think that is also a huge part of learning that I think transcends the curriculum. It happens in the hallways. It happens in yeah. the lunchroom. It happens in the parking lot as we walk into the building and greet one another. So, yeah. I'm really kind of intrigued by this distinction you've made here between the difference, let's say the distinction between the on-screen attempt at education, which look, some education happens there and I'm teaching an online course this summer and students are learning and I think, you know, I mean, right, right. there are metric, like, you know, there are outcomes, they're meeting some of those outcomes. Anyways, exactly. there's that. But then the difference about being in the same space together, and you were talking about this earlier, like the importance of space to the teaching of Jesus which is more than just teaching. It's a formation that includes teaching with Jesus. But I've thought about this, and I think I'm just starting to get my thoughts together about it, in terms of the dynamics of sound. So one of the things, maybe you've recognized this too, say you're teaching on Zoom, you can't really have two people making sound at the same time. You can't have two people talking. And you know you don't want two people talking over each other in the same physical space either. But One of the things that happens when you're together, whether it's conversation in the same space, but also teaching is it isn't just me as the speaker, the teacher, and you as the recipient, as the listener. There is more of a give and take and a dynamic. And sometimes it has to do with laughs. Sometimes it has to do with yawns. Sometimes it has to do with a gasp or chuckle or whatever it is, right? But it 
that's something that maybe I didn't recognize and appreciate as fully before. The importance of all those things that you wouldn't necessarily recall when you go back over your day, say, as a teacher or as a student. But when it's not there and you're forced into just one person making sound at a time, you don't have the layers of sound. And I'm sure there's some sound experts out there that just say, well, you don't have good enough equipment. Okay, fine. But when you don't have layers of sound, you're losing. I feel the loss, like I think you're pointing to, of the interpersonal dynamics of the education. Like this isn't just me saying things to you, me, the teacher, you, the student. It's about me communicating with you. You giving me something back. We're having to find out where this goes, right? Exactly. Okay, that was my little yeah, my little sermon in the middle of our no, <laughs> I know. Of our I, chat here. Yeah. I think a teacher can only ever be, you know, at most three quarters of the way quote planned for class because if you're overly scripted, your class is right, going to be terrible. Actually, right. but if you're not planned, if you haven't planned anything at all, it's also likely going to be terrible. It's a nightmare. Yes, yes exactly. Because so, you have to have that purpose in mind, yeah. but, uh, you know, and that roadmap. But I think you're exactly right. You're as a teacher, you're playing off those sounds. Mm-hmm. You're stepping aside and letting the students take over to a certain extent when they're ready for that. And you just you can't do that when the norm on a screen is to please mute yourself, right? Absolutely. I mean- <laughs> yeah, no, please, please mute yourself. Yes. Exactly. Well, and I found sort of the trick for speaking, giving lectures on, say, Zoom, is you actually just have to go right through it. Like, I can't pause. Like, that actually makes a bad lecture, right. say, on Zoom. And it's precisely the opposite of what you should do in person. Like, don't just push through. Be attentive. Listen. Right. You know, maybe you, here you do have to take a little detour, slow down, or repeat something because you you can recognize in people. Anyways, right. you know, one of the terms you brought up, another one of the terms you brought up in your essay was the term learnification. Yeah. So here's a little bit of sort of educational jargon, right? Exactly. But it carries something. It points to a trend, as you mentioned, that philosophers, sociologists have picked up on. Can you just educate us a little bit about this term, learnification. What is this trend that it's marking? Yeah, great question. So that comes primarily from Garrett Bista, who mm-hmm. I, I cite in that essay. He does a lot of work with Charles Bingham, who's actually the, the first philosopher I bring up in the essay. Mm-hmm. And both of them are very interested in more of the ethical implications of education. And so their work pushes back to a, a decent extent on that more you know, technocratic, pragmatic obsession that we tend to have in education. And that's where the commentary on learnification is happening. So the whole idea behind learnification is that education has just simply been, to harken back to the very beginning of our conversation, conflated with learning. Mm -hmm. That so long as I consume information as a learner, then education has done its job. And Bista, as he's as he's writing about that, is talking about sort of the problems with that because what it does is it just simply commodifies education. And it's all about pleasing the consumer and basically accommodating whatever expectations consumers come to the table with in and around education. And so you could see how, you know, even in a Catholic education context, certainly I think there are many, quote, consumers of Catholic education that at the end of the day are interested in, you know, what the test scores produce for their students because those test scores are going to drive scholarships to college, which are Mm -hmm. ultimately going to determine career outcomes. But as, as a Catholic school, we believe that there is 
you know, a dimension to education that you simply can't put a price tag on, right? right. And so if we, I guess part of Catholic education is like really evangelizing people in and around that as well. Yeah. This is Leonard Lorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. I'm talking with Dr. Katie Macaluso, Assistant Teaching Professor in the Institute for Educational Initiatives at Notre Dame, where she also serves as Director of ACE Advocates. That point that you brought up there about the sort of commodification of learning, consumer desire, and meeting what the consumer wants. In this case, it would most likely be the parents who we could lay the blame at parents, but this isn't necessarily the parents' fault, right? Part of what is going on is that these are the objectives towards education that are out there on offer. And so you say, well, this is why my child should be educated in order to maybe compete for the scholarship, getting to the most prestigious school possible, become job qualified, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm wondering about is, and I think this this maybe touches on the where you just ended with that previous response, is how much of education is not just about meeting desires, but actually forming and transforming desires. And in that case, the Catholic school has a deep interest in forming and transforming the desires of students, but also, therefore, of families and of communities, right? Can you speak to that a little bit about the the role of desire and changing desire? Yes, yes. I love that connection between forming and transforming. Thank you for bringing that up. You talked earlier about formation, and Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important term when we're thinking about Catholic education. So... Absolutely. You know, let me just start from a personal standpoint. You know, why do my husband and I invest in Catholic education? I mean, obviously, our jobs are connected to it (laughs) to a certain extent. But at the end of the day, like what I always tell my friends about why I buy into Catholic schools is that I know that my children will face experiences of suffering. They will, right, carry those crosses Mm -hmm. that I talked about earlier. And the only thing the, the, the only thing that I can give them as a parent is this dedication to the faith, which I know is the only thing that's going to carry them through those crosses and that suffering yeah. with a framework of hope, right, yes. and redemption. Yes. And so I think that at the end of the day, you know, we study language arts not just to become more adept at writing and reading mm-hmm. and speaking, but to really crack open these questions of the soul, right? And to figure out what it means to pursue the life worth living. And we study science and we study math to put ourselves in touch with the intelligibility of the universe that God, the creator, right, imbued the universe with. And I, I think that really is that transformative work that you're talking about. It's altering the lens through which students and their families see the world and their place and, you know, meaning within it. And I love that you brought up this idea of not only transforming students, but also families, because I would be, you know, a little bit Pollyanna-esque here if I didn't (laughs) acknowledge the fact that, you know, Catholic schools, they're facing, you know, a tough reality. Yeah. You know, we've looked, the number of Catholic schools in this country has been cut in half since the 1960s. Enrollment has been cut in half. We just saw the largest enrollment decline in Catholic schools in in 2020 Mm -hmm. since the 1970s when they began tracking enrollment. So this Mm -hmm. could be the lowest, this could be the greatest enrollment decline we've ever seen in American history, which is, I think, just over 6%. So as we think about what do we need to be doing as advocates of Catholic education, to ensure the vitality of Catholic education's future, 
I really do think we have to be evangelizing families. We have to be transforming their reasons and rationale for engaging in education and to help them see what they're giving Mm. their children mm-hmm. um, when they're giving them the gift of a Catholic education. Mm. I remember this this poster that was up on the board. It was always there in my high school morality class. I went to a Catholic high school almost by accident. The reason I went to Catholic high school, I was in eighth grade and I turned on the TV and I a high school football team was on TV in of the course. 90s. <laughs> like I was like, what? Is, and so I went to that school. I was like, well, that's the coolest thing ever. Of course. Um, in any event. This poster that was up on the on the board, I saw it every day. It said, don't pray for an easy life. Pray to be a strong person. And I thought it was lame and almost like cliched then. But I remember it like 30 sure. years later. But something that you were talking about there in terms of like giving our children the capacity, the strength to deal with suffering. It seems that perhaps so much of the counter message is do everything you can to avoid suffering. Exactly. To have the easier life. Right. It's financial security that will protect you from suffering. It's the upward social mobility that will protect you from suffering. It's all of these things that will protect you from suffering. But everybody who has done that has realized, we all realize, <laughs> there's no protection from suffering. Right. So I love the way that you pointed our attention to the reliance upon the faith because it doesn't take away suffering. Mm-hmm. That's a prosperity gospel, which we would throw out immediately. It doesn't hold water. Instead, what does it do? This Catholic faith, it makes sense of suffering. It gives us someone to depend on. Mm-hmm. It gives us something to do with our suffering, offer it over, pray about it. It gives us something that we must do relative to other people's suffering, which is either to alleviate it or join them in their suffering. Right. So that just, I don't know, the way you spoke about that just rang so clearly for me, like here is part of the mission of evangelization that is shot through Catholic education, right? Like this is part of the heart of it is maybe it was captured in that little poster that was there in my high school morality class. Like this is what it means to be a strong person, a hopeful person. So let me ask about this. You've given us so much. So let me just ask maybe one more thing. When you're talking about teachers and the interpersonal dynamics with students. And now we're talking about the engagement with parents and families and the transformation of desire. Since you educate and form teachers, can you talk a bit to the, like what you might see as the importance? Certainly there's their professional formation as teachers, but their human and spiritual formation mm-hmm. to be Catholic educators. How would you speak to the the importance of that? And I don't know, do, do we have enough of that? That's a great question. I think your question points to the reality that we're always teaching, right? <laughs> um, it gets again back at that point about we're teaching beyond what we expect. We're teaching mm. beyond the scripted curricula. And so what I mean by that is that as teachers, you know, we too have storied lives. Yeah. And we have frames through which we make sense of our own stories. And I think – Modeling that to our students and sharing those stories with them and couching them in terms of the faith is it's essential to the work that we do as Catholic educators because ultimately at the end of the day, we're called to be gospel witnesses, mm. right? That's what we are. And so we're more than teachers. We're, we're gospel witnesses. And to that end, certainly it matters that 
my teachers are members of the National Council of Teachers of English and that they're keeping up to date on best practice yeah. in language and literacy Absolutely. education. But it also means that it matters that they're going to mass on Sundays right. and they're partaking of the sacraments and they're spending time doing their own spiritual reading yeah. and really thinking about how, you know, that that Hopkins poem, right? The, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Mm -hmm. um, that's ultimately like the poem that they should be bringing into their yeah. classrooms every day, right? Where and how do we see God yeah. in the thing that seems the furthest possible from mm. God himself? So I think filling our teachers up, not only with professional content knowledge, but with that spiritual enrichment is essential mm. to the future of Catholic schools and that Catholic identity that we have to keep at the core. Beautifully stated. I've been talking with Dr. Katie Macaluso of the Institute for Educational Initiatives at Notre Dame. The point of departure for our conversation, as I mentioned earlier, was her essay in the Church Life Journal. The title of that essay is New Pathways for Catholic Schools After the Pandemic. I cannot recommend it to you highly enough. Please look that up. Katie, thanks so much for the time spent with us today. Well, thank you, Lenny. I appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. 